Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back with a Tuesday edition of the Fenway Rundown. I'm Chris Cotillo. We'll be joined by Sean McAdam in a second. Mass Live's Red Sox podcast back at you with the Red Sox home, playing the Rockies right now. Yankees coming in over the weekend. Last week, I think, was one of the more memorable weeks that I've covered on the Red Sox beat. Trip to Cleveland and a trip to New York where baseball a lot of times was secondary. The Matt Dermody controversy after his homophobic tweet surfaced. Chris Sale's injury, Alex Verdugo getting benched for lack of hustle. So Sean and I have a lot to pack into this show. We'll get to all of that, talk about where the Red Sox go from here. They're a game under 500, stumbling, frustrations are boiling over. I'm going to try to peel back the curtain a little bit and talk about you know some media stuff and how you know, we handle certain situations in the case of you know, Alex Verdugo hasn't talked since being benched, things like that. So hope you enjoy the show. First of two this week, and let's get to it. Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam here back for another Fenway Rundown. Last week, a double guest week for us, Terry Francona on Tuesday. Sean talked to David Cohn on Thursday, so I hope you enjoyed those episodes. If you're expecting another big name, we're going to disappoint you today. It's just the two of us, a lot to catch up on with the Red Sox because there's been a lot going on with them last week. A 3-3 three and three road trip to Cleveland where our Chris Smith covered it for us and then New York where Sean was this week back home as we record this on Tuesday uh, early afternoon. Uh, kind of a tough loss to the Rockies last night, but a lot of storylines surrounding this team right now, a lot of injury-related stuff, some off-the-field controversy. We'll get to it uh, right now. Sean, I want to ask you, you were the person who, uh, as we worked late into the night on, I think it was Wednesday night of last week, broke the Red Sox uh, reacting to Matt Dermody's tweets from the past story. I think that was something that really dominated you know, Twitter, social media, um, the news cycle around this team for, for really two or three days last week. Um, you know, this is something that we had heard of back, you know, dating back to spring training when people, you know, fans were, you know, kind of hinting that there was something going on with Matt Dermody and that had come up. And, you know, when his name popped up, something that obviously resurfaced and, and the Red Sox handled it the way they did. I mean, I, I've asked this question to people within the organization, um, but I'll ask it to you, someone who's covered the team in, in 35 years. Can you remember a bigger unforced error PR blunder for really you know, no reason in that time covering the team? Yeah, um, unfortunately, I can. Uh, I mean, I go back to some of the stories that came out of Winter Haven and the Red Sox allowing a segregated Elks club to hand out passes only to white players 
in the Red Sox spring training clubhouse. So um, this is not their first misstep. And I would argue that it is not as bad as that one that I just referenced, but it mm -hmm. certainly was the very epitome of an unforced error. Um, I, I, I've tried, you know, as you kind of look at things from a distance and maybe uh, try to find how they see it and maybe even give them the benefit of the doubt on some of this. And it's hard to find because when you look at what they did to bring Dermody up, he wasn't on the 40 man roster. So that excuse was out. You know, they could have said, well, we didn't want to have to designate someone else to make room. So Dermody was already on the roster. We figured we'd give him a look. They had to add him to the 40 man roster they could have done that to literally a half dozen pitchers at AAA, including Rio Gomez, who everyone agrees would have been a great story rather than the PR disaster that Matt Dermody turned into. You have Rio as a guy who has fought his way up uh, through uh, the minor league system, recently promoted from AA to AAA. It's, it's kind of a... Uh, feel-good story and would have been for them had they summoned him to give them three or four innings that night in Cleveland. Instead, they invited all of this trouble onto themselves for a guy who, let's face it, really doesn't even qualify as a 4A guy. He is not an up-and-down journeyman who's had all kinds of time in the big leagues. He's appeared in, you know, uh, I think 20 games prior to that one. They were all in relief. He did nothing to distinguish himself, really. And yet they invited this on themselves. And and uh, for the life of me, even with the benefit of five or six days hindsight, I still don't understand it. And obviously, you know, this is something where, you know, they're, they're alienating their fans in, in a certain community. They're having Pride Night tonight. And... Is it worth it to have a guy give you four mediocre innings and then DFA him? It just it can't be, you know. And um, I think that there's there's you know impacts of this that are seen. There's ones that are unseen, um, and, and just a weird, you know, strange day for the organization for for an organization that's so PR conscious, that's so worried about every little thing. And you know, look, I've I've said you know things on this podcast where. Um, they're just talking about a player's performance and have had to talk to the uh, the player about them. That's how you know PR conscious they are. And for something like this to happen, you know, where it's just so tone deaf, I think is is really really striking. The other thing that came out um, Thursday night on a really 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 busy day for Chris Smith in Cleveland, Corey Kluber not talking to the media, Alex Verdugo being benched, not being available. It just seemed like you know. Uh, probably you know words we can't use on the show uh, to describe how that Thursday and how the end of that week transpired for them just a point in the season where this is starting to become a lost cause frustrations boiling over how do you kind of assess where um, the entire kind of circus that that was in Cleveland and has kind of continued the last few days is well let's clean it up a little Chris and call it a bleep show I think that's where yeah. you were headed right um, and that's not too strong a, a phrase in describing how things have gone in the last week uh, between a uh, a pretty good everyday player failing to hustle and costing them an out at second base, resulting in him being removed from that game and then benched the next night. Um, it, it You know, the Red Sox, uh, it was not their finest few days uh, as they got ready to go into New York. And as I said, um, the, the difficult part is a lot of this got brought on 
themselves. You know, you can certainly question Heim Bloom's judgment in adding Dermody to the roster and ignoring some of the fallout that was bound to happen and did take place from a PR standpoint. But let's not forget that that move doesn't get made. Both his signing back in January and February, his retention by the team when the story came to light, and then finally the decision to bring him up. You have to believe that, uh, in fact, we know that Sam Kennedy was aware of it because he provided a statement to Mass Live when we were writing the story. So to that, in that sense, he had signed off on it. And I have to believe that given... Um, the uh, uh, the role that ownership plays here and the way that you have to manage up in that organization, as you do in many organizations, that ownership was aware of it. So why allow all those things to happen? The other moves that you cite, uh, Corey Kluber getting lit up in Cleveland, allowing eight base runners or eight hitters to reach in a row, I think at one point, kind of taking one for the team, uh, that had to be a humbling thing for him. We're talking about a two-time Cy Young Award winner pitching in the city that he is most closely associated with and really being thrown to the wolves. And and I don't say that as any criticism of Alex Cora. It, it's just he was in there to take his lumps for the rest of the way, and it was tough to watch. And you wonder how he fits in going forward. And then the whole Verdugo thing, which is just not a good look when the manager feels frustrated enough that he's got to make a statement to remove a player and then bench him the following day for lack of hustle. And we're talking about Alex Verdugo, a guy that a lot of people thought had sort of turned the corner earlier this year, came into camp in better shape, uh, ran hard on the bases, uh, made himself into a better outfielder. All those things kind of get negated by a lazy, sloppy bit of base running one night in Cleveland. Alex Gore has been known to do the tough love thing before. We've seen it with the most uh, often mentioned spring training performance of all time, Eduardo Rodriguez in Port St. Lucie a few years ago, where Gore came out and ripped him to the media uh, about you know not attacking. I think it was Dominic Smith in a certain at-bat. Tried to let a fire under Rodriguez that year, and it worked. He's tried to do the same in the past with different guys and then clearly tried to do that with Verdugo at the end of last season. So maybe that's this is just more of that. But, you know, to see it play out publicly. And, and look, I hate getting into the whole game of how things leak and trying to play that game with our competitors and our friends on the beat. But the fact that that surfaced to Julian McWilliams of the Globe to me, and Julian said this himself on, on the Baseball Hour with Tony Maz, suggests the Red Sox wanted that out there. They wanted it known that Verdugo had been uh, benched and then, you know, was, you know, basically suspended for, for a game because of it. Yeah. And credit to Julian for having that story first last right. Thursday in Cleveland. But let's remember that when he was asked about it at his pregame session, Alex Cora talked about it freely. So it yep. wasn't like, uh, you know, somebody leaked it to Julian and then Cora deci decided not to address it. He very much came clean and said that it was done because he was unhappy with the effort from Verdugo the night before. And I thought it was a good move, not because it punished uh, Alex Verdugo and made an example out of him, but I thought they were getting away from some accountability on that team. There was the base running mistake that, uh, that became uh, very public and talked about by Verdugo, not baked base running mistake, lack of effort on in base running. But mm -hmm. we could go back the prior week 
and see a complete lack of focus on the part of numerous players, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, not backing up bases, jogging after balls that get through to the outfield, uh, making throws to the wrong cutoff men. All of a sudden, this, you know, for a period there, it looked like this team was not invested in itself and not properly focused and playing with the intensity you would think comes with being a major league team. So I, I, whether Cora reached his breaking point, whether he thought Verdugo was a particularly good guy to make an example of, it almost doesn't matter. I think getting some accountability back and sending a message in that clubhouse that, uh, look, errors are going to be made. Guys are going to strike out in big spots. Pitchers are going to throw the wrong pitch. All of those things happen. They're physical errors, but you can control focus, attention, and effort. And when that's not there, Alex Cora, let it be known that there will be consequences. And I thought it was about time. You talk about accountability, and that's something that you know comes up, I think, in, in our roles, obviously, in the form of after a bad game, do players assess them or address the media? You know, it's something that's simple. It happens after every game. And when it doesn't happen, I think it is a story. I think there's sometimes a disconnect where fans think that we are just complaining. Oh, he didn't talk to me. Wow. 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 In the case of you know Verdugo and Kluber last week and Thursday, that got a lot of play on Twitter. You know, it came to light the next day that Verdugo was dealing with some family tragedy. I believe his grandmother died. And that's, you know, um, People were wondering if that's why he didn't want to talk when asked by a few different reporters on, on different occasions in Cleveland. Obviously, as I did point out on Twitter, we don't know what's going on in the mind of every player. If his mind was on that and he didn't want to talk, you know, somewhat understandable, obviously. I wouldn't want to talk in that situation either. It just seems like in the last week, you know, we're, we're getting to a point where there's a lot of these guys declining to talk after the game. Last night, as I pointed out, in my post-game story and on Twitter, Rafael Devers, after a bad game where he, not really a bad game, just a frustrating game, he taps out on the first pitch with the bases loaded, no outs in the first, hits an absolute missile that gets robbed for a home run. Alex Cora said it was one of his best swings of the season. And after the game, super late, yes, you know, we understand that you don't want to be there at, at almost midnight. We don't either after a rain delay. You know, uncharacteristic for him, you know, to avoid talking. He always talks and he's accountable and all that type of stuff. I just, when that happens and it starts bunching up like that, it just kind of screams checking out in a little, uh, in some ways. And I know it always feels like it's coming from, you know, not an authentic place because we are writers and it makes our jobs more difficult when these things happen. But it really, you know, players understand, especially in Boston, that's part of the gig. It's part of the game. And when they're they're not willing to talk, it just is like, feels like the frustration has has boiled over, you know, and, and yeah. it's only mid-June. Yeah, you talked about how fans often react to us discussing players not making themselves available. And I think you're correct that most of them think we're whining. We do our share of whining. I'll plead guilty to that. Yeah, but, but I that's think just it's about the media dining, usually. <laughs> I think it's also important to point out that there's not only a responsibility to fans, I think. We are the vessel through which players communicate to fans for the most part um, and and to answer questions and provide uh, their vantage point, but also to their teammates. Because for every time that Alex Verdugo doesn't talk about being benched for lack of hustle, 
And for every time someone else doesn't talk about being demoted or losing their particular standing on a roster or any of that, oftentimes somebody else on the team does have to do that in their stead. And so there's a responsibility, even if you want to take the media out of the equation, I think there is responsibility to fans uh, who want to hear why something happened. And I think there's also a responsibility to their fellow teammates that they are accountable for whatever bad has transpired, that they explain themselves so that their teammates are not asked by us uh, in the, uh, you know, as stand-ins and, and replacements um, to, to, you know, take that load off their fellow players. Yeah. And it's something that, again, is it the biggest deal in the world? No. Is it uh, more on the nose for us? Maybe because it does affect the, the job at the end of a long day. Maybe, but I do think that they owe it to the fans. And, you know, I believe Verdugo still hasn't addressed uh, what happened the other day. Uh, no, me if I'm no, wrong. And he very carefully avoided reporters in New York the entire three days because I tried to uh, be in a position to approach him to get some comment, even if it had happened two, three, four days earlier. And it was pretty clear that he was being very careful about where he went in the clubhouse, where he was. Uh, coming out of the dugout, he obviously had no appetite to address it. And, you know, we're at the point now where it happened five or six days ago, and I suppose he has managed to run out the clock on this, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Right. Uh, let's get to what happened Friday, your first day in New York. Uh, major, major news breaks before the game. And it happened, I think, in a weird way because, you know, we knew roster moves were coming, Duval would be back, and there'd be a shakeup. And, you know, one of those moves, I think, stuck out more than the others, and that was Chris Sale being moved to the 60-day injured list when uh, you had written a column a week earlier, because that's how it was presented to us, that this was, for once, good news in the best-case scenario on Chris Sale. It's no knock on you. That's how they made it seem. And then all of a sudden, he's on the 60-day injured list, and, uh uh-oh, what's going on here? A stress reaction or stress fracture in the shoulder blade. I mean, it's just... I had so much hope for Sale heading into the year. One of my bold predictions was he was going to get Cy Young votes. I don't know if you can get that off a seven-start stretch. Uh, Maybe if one of us has a vote, we can prove me right with that. Um, But, I mean, it's just – it just never ends, I guess, right? I mean, is that just a takeaway here? And and I know people, you know, are are now inclined to climb on him and call him brittle and not tough and all those other things – which I find to be ridiculous. I, I've never understood why fans get angry at players for being injured. Nobody yeah. is trying to miss time. Nobody is trying to injure themselves. Nobody is trying to not be out and competing and doing their job and doing what they love. And I think you and I know Sale fairly well. I've covered him since he arrived. Um, you've covered him for the last five years. Uh, This is a competitive guy who expects a lot out of himself, who understands his role and responsibility and what the Red Sox expect of him. Uh, I think he's accountable. We've heard him carve himself up after bad outings. When he gets frustrated, he wears his emotions on his sleeve. And you do start to wonder, and, and this is quite apart from his injury history and wondering, you know, is there something there that is preventing him from just going out and competing, whether it's the lack of bulk on his frame, something about his his 
physiological makeup. I'll leave that to much smarter people. But I do know that you can't watch this guy perform and compete and listen to him and come away without knowing that he wants to be out there. And it's got to be killing him that it's one thing after another, the broken rib. The, the the broken pinky on the comebacker, the the wrist from the bike accident, and now of course the shoulder blade incident that's going to keep him sidelined for at least two months. We suspect even longer. In fact, there is no guarantee, as Red Sox personnel said over the weekend, that he's going to come back this year. They hope he is, but when you're on the 60-day DL or IL until the first week of August, and start wondering about buildup and coming back. Uh, it may not be in the cards. And the the discouraging thing, apart from however Chris Sale feels about it, and we think we know that, is that he actually was pitching very well. I mean, th- this was, again, the number one front of the rotation type of guy. And uh, now they are now they miss that for at least two months. And as we said, we suspect considerably longer. Um, that's a big blow to that team that already had some depth in pitching questions to the point where, uh, as if we needed to remind people, they needed to turn to someone like Matt Dermody to fill in a start, um, you know, at the end of a road trip or at the end of a road series last year. So uh, it's a crushing blow for sale psychologically and emotionally. And it's a crushing blow from a baseball standpoint to the Red Sox because they can't afford to lose a guy that talented And, you know, this now means that Cutter Crawford gets an opportunity to start. You and I are both on record as saying we think there's some real promise and potential there for what he can do in that role. But no matter how good he is or is going to be, it's a big step down from the Chris Sale that we saw for the previous six or seven weeks and how well he was pitching. And it really scrambles their plans. It changes, perhaps, their focus at the trade deadline. Uh, there are all sorts of after effects from this injury and loss. With that being said, your takeaway from a weekend in New York was that do you think this rotation is obviously weakened but not completely screwed? Yeah, I, I think you have to look at, uh, you know, I, I was joking with Julian McWilliams after Sunday night that Alex Cora kept referring to the kids, meaning the three starters who pitched over the weekend, neglecting to mention that Tanner Houck is 26 and that Garrett Whitlock had turned 27 on that very day. Mm -hmm. Still, we get what he's talking about, guys that don't have a lot of starting experience in the big leagues. And to look at them giving up five earned runs, okay, the Yankees were without Aaron Judge. They're not at full strength, but it's still a pretty decent lineup. And to go through that team over three days and allow five earned runs combined for the three of them, uh, you know, that's a positive development. And you see each one of them getting better. Whitlock, I thought, was particularly impressive. Hauk has been sort of up and down in his performance since the start of the year. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just starting to see what Brian Bayo is capable of. I thought that was brilliant on Sunday. So you can see the, uh, the, the germ of a growing rotation uh, that is essentially homegrown. Hauk and Bayo were originally draft picks and international signings, respectively. And even though Whitlock came from another organization, he hadn't pitched above double A when they got him. So they had to 
really, uh, you know, complete his development. So the fact that the Red Sox have, let's not call them kids, but three starters in their mid-20s who have some promise is probably the most, um, I think, striking and encouraging thing that we've seen through the first two and a half months of the season. No, they're like my age, so we can call them kids if we want. They're not. They're not that old. Uh, and obviously, mature, then, but then who isn't? Right, that's fair. I think. Speaking of mature, the now elder statesman of the rotation has been perhaps the biggest surprise I think of the Red Sox season. James Paxton with another gem last night, three oh nine ERA through six starts. I mean, he's been excellent, and the stuff yeah, is great, he, and he deserves a lot of credit too. Yeah, I I, I agree. Um, I, he he has surpassed my expectations. You never knew what you were going to get with this guy who had his own setbacks. He had the lat issue in August when it looked like he was getting close to returning in September. September. Then, you know, one of the first things that happens when he pitches in spring training is he has a hamstring issue that further sidelines him. And let's not forget, this was a guy who was getting his lunch at AAA during his rehab assignment. Yep. He was getting hit hard. You look at the numbers and he was given up five and six runs in some of those outings. And you thought, boy, this is a disappointment after as long as they've waited and the money they've invested here. Mm-hmm. But he has completely uh, turned that around at the major league level. You mentioned six starts. Five of them have been two runs or fewer. And improbably, he is now the leader of that rotation. And he's pitched so little over the last three or four years. And I suppose that everyone in that organization crosses their fingers every time he goes to the mound but there's no arguing with the results he's given them over the last, uh, you know, month and a half in those first six starts. Yes, definitely. And, and you know, he is um, obviously not pitched a full year, but been, been a, a big bright spot. We'll get to one more topic quickly and then we'll, we'll wrap it up with um, a couple of our little segments. But Trevor Story talked yesterday. He said he expects, to, if all goes well, to DH in July to resume playing shortstop in August. Is that too aggressive in your mind? Do you think that is a good plan to have him come back on these kind of dueling timelines, or how do you assess him? Well, I I think they could use that bat just as soon as they can get it. The question is, how does it fit into the rest of the lineup and the roster? Uh, Unless you're going to start essentially platooning Justin Turner at first base with Tristan Casas, which we can't rule out as Casas continues to struggle, made a or, bad error. Or more, more than platooning. I just give Justin Turner the position. Yeah, that, that that's possible. Um, I, I think there's some risk there because you're not sure, of course, what you're going to get physically and from a production standpoint from story right away. Um, what they really need is a shortstop. And uh, the, the disconcerting thing from the Red Sox standpoint is that other than uh, Pablo Reyes, there are no other in-house options uh, to Kike Hernandez, who continues to watch that error total go up. The hope had been that Yu Chang might be back by now, but he has been recalled again from his rehab assignment with some discomfort in that hand after the hamate surgery. So he's not going to be back anytime soon. Uh, you know, by soon, I mean the next week or so, maybe he could be back in two weeks if with some rest, the hand starts to feel better and he has some at-bats at the minor league level and is ready to come back. So on one hand, you can't wait for Story to come back and be the shortstop that we know he can be with the range and everything else and a repaired elbow to improve his arm strength. 
to say nothing of the bat he provides. But to think that he's going to be able to be back at, I mean, even he used August as a timetable for shortstop. So never mind getting his bat back after the all-star break, which could be welcome. But there's a question of how does that fit with the rest of everyone else? And it doesn't address the shortstop issue, which in my mind is far more pressing. Yeah, and that's obviously something that will shake out over the next couple of weeks. I will. Uh, I'm going to Minnesota on Monday. We. I'm going to combine segments because we're running over here. We we kind of put you on the spot by mentioning a name, and I also like to ask for a travel story. I am going to combine them, and just shoehorn you into Nomar Garcia Para in Minnesota. Yeah, we'll take us home with that. I thought I thought you might say that one. Um, at the trading deadline in Jul- in 2004. Uh, out of nowhere, because there had been no suggestion or even any reporting that this was in the works. The Red Sox, of course, on a Saturday, July 31st, pulled off a massive four-team trade that ended up sending Nomar Garcia Parra uh, out of town. And it so happened that the Red Sox were in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, at the Metrodome, uh, playing the Twins for, I think, what was a 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock start. Uh, we were as I think four o'clock, maybe three o'clock local time, central time came up and the deadline was coming. We were ushered out of the clubhouse. That gave us a sense that something was happening. Uh, sure enough, word broke that Garcia Parra was part of a four team deal. Uh, we watched as Doug Minkiewicz walked down the hallway from the home clubhouse of the Metrodome and the Twins and joined the Red Sox. That was a little surreal. And then Nomar came out after the clubhouse access had closed and addressed uh, the Red Sox traveling beat writers, myself included, then working for the Providence Journal. There were probably six, seven, eight of us at the time. And because of the nature of the deal, which was a big deal at the time, given his involvement, the Associated Press writer from Minneapolis was also in on that scrum, getting quotes to file a story to AP. At the end, after about 10 minutes of answering questions, uh, Nomar said, guys, uh, sorry, but I got to go. I got to catch a flight. He was joining the Cubs and he had to get to the airport. And he said, you know, hate to run, but got to go catch a flight. Uh, been great working with you guys. And then in an uncharacteristic move, because Nomar was not the most accessible or necessarily um, the I don't want to say unfriendly, but he also, he, he, he treated the media with wariness uh, and was not the most forthcoming all the time. But uh, as he was leaving his time with the Red Sox, he went around and gave everybody on the beat a quick hug. And the last hug was given to the AP writer in Minneapolis, who was somewhat flummoxed as to why this guy he had never before met was hugging him goodbye. Apparently, uh, Nomar wasn't big with names and faces and somehow thought that this gentleman from the AP in Minneapolis had been a longtime Red Sox beat writer and somebody that Nomar just didn't recognize immediately. So that was kind of a funny story. Uh, I'm going to give you another quick one. I know we're running late. Rick Aguilera, um, whom the Red Sox acquired uh, in the hours before he was going to become a 10-5 player. That is 10 seasons in the big leagues, the last five with the same team. He had made it clear he wanted to stay in Minnesota. The Twins wanted to move him and get something for him before he could refuse a trade. The Red Sox needed bullpen help. And we actually saw in real time 
Rick Aguilera being called in from the bullpen while the game was going on, not to pitch, but to be told he was traded to the Red Sox. So twice the Red Sox have made big deals in Minneapolis uh, involving twins players and some unique circumstances. So those are my Minnesota memories. Great city. Enjoy it. And one of the more underrated ballparks in either league, I think, Target Field. I think you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I went for the All-Star game at 14. We're looking forward to a triumphant return almost a decade later. We'll uh, be back Thursday. Not sure exactly what we're going to do yet, but um, it won't be just the two of us. Sounds somebody good. else. Yeah, we'll make it for once. That's Sean McAdam. I'm Chris Cotillo, and that is the Fenway Rundown on this Tuesday.